You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2309 North Broad Street. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. Who would self, it's a great opening, I know. Who would, who would self-describe as a nerd or a geek here? Just raise your hand. Just to be ashamed here. There we go. This is not a this is not an example of it. I am one. I was wow, we're getting a lot of hands up here. I think that nerds and geeks are dangerous groups of people. Um, no, it's it's purely self-selecting, in my opinion. And so it's not I think nerd is more about like how how smart you are or something like that. How well you did in calculus, for example. And geek is more about an intense, special focus on a certain subject, for example, right? Um, and the two often go hand in hand, at least in my experience. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of, I feel weird saying this, but I'm kind of a Bible nerd um, or a Bible geek. I don't know where I fit. I'm definitely not a Bible dork, by the way. No, <laughs> I'm not. And that is its, its own kind of dangerous. I, I'm, a, I'm a nerd about the Bible because I love it. And the more I read the Bible, the more I love it. And the, the first part of the summer, I spent in an old Presbyterian church in Narberth, out in the suburbs, in this little tiny classroom in, this ch- in, in a church learning New Testament Greek. Koine Greek, street Greek, you might say. Dr. Watson was my teacher. She's a great teacher, really loved her. And I really enjoyed every minute of this intensive. We were there, my classmates and I, from 8.30 to noon every day, every weekday for four weeks. So it it was long and kind of nuts in its intensity. And then there was homework after. And I'd be up till like 2 a.m. translating passages of the Bible. We started with nothing. We knew the Greek letters. That's how we started, in order. Pete Rose is in there somewhere. This is how I remember. I memorized it. Um, P and Rho are the two letters, right? So that's <laughs> what I think about. And, and then by the end of it, I could do a rough, bad translation of a passage of the Bible, of the New Testament. Um, and it was technical and frustrating and illuminating. Um, and amazingly, I never once asked, you know, why am I learning this? What's the point of learning New Testament Greek? This was never even on my mind. Um, and a friend even asked me, like, didn't, like, the best people at translating the Bible make English Bibles? Like, isn't that, th- they, didn't they really work hard on that? Like, a lot of different people. So what are you doing? Isn't this what commentaries are for? And I never thought, that never that co- I never suffered any cognitive dissonance because of that. I just kept going. And I'm like, yeah, it's true. But this is kind of fun. I'm going to keep doing it. Um, those questions didn't pop into my mind because I like the Bible. I love it. Um, and I'm passionate about it. And I want to deepen my understanding of it. Um, and my love for the Bible has to do with my, how I've related to it over the years. Even since my youth, my mom gave me a Bible. I think I still have it back there. 
Back there is where my office is. It's not like a random place where my Bible is. <laughs> and, you know, she's, she's like a fundamentalist style person. And she said, this, this, this is how she said it. I remember, this book will keep you from sin. And sin will keep you from this book. It was a very sweet thing for her to say to me. <laughs> you know. And honestly, I have not, in my uh, love for the Bible and my... Uh, I guess love of sin. They haven't been real. They 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 haven't like countered each other particularly. Can you say that? Can I say I love sin and, and not be like condemned to hell by you? I mean, how do you feel about that? You know, I also love beef jerky. You know, there's a lot of things that I love. Um, so maybe that's maybe maybe you're getting an idea about what that word means to me. Um, oh, you don't like beef jerky? Anyway. But it has to do with how I've related to it even in my younger years. And it's a hard book to relate to. Um, and it's hard to relate to anything without falling in love with it over time. You know, your love deepens for the people that you relate to for a long time. And it's not because the relationship is perfect. You know, like any relationship, I've been mad at the Bible before. I've been mad at the Bible writers with whom I feel like I have some sort of relationship. I might have even hated the Bible at some point. Do you ever tell someone you really love that you hate them? Right? It's, it's, a, it's, not, it's not your best moment when you do that. But it happens, right? People that you're really close to that you're uh, rubbing elbows with, right? People that you're like sharing intimate things with. But we've generally made up, me and the Bible. And I'm, and I'm, in, lo I'm in love with it. You know, we have a, we have a relationship. That I guess I've made up with the Bible. The Bible hasn't really like apologized to <laughs> me about anything so far, but you know I understand that it's a book, and you know isn't going to talk to me. Remember, remember that. Um, but I do admit that sometimes my intense love for it and the intense relationship that I have with the Bible can be dangerous in a sense. Back to the nerd conversation, because the Bible nerds are a dangerous group of people because they can be exclusive. They can be mean to each other. I've for, sometimes for for sport, this is my sport. I watch Bible nerds fight each other, <laughs> or they write these essays back and forth, countering one another. And sometimes they're very mean and cutting. There's these two. I recommend. I don't. I can't, I can't really recommend it. But if you watch the feud between a guy named N.T. Wright, who translated the New Testament and a guy named David Bentley Hart who did the same. They wrote, N.T. Wright wrote a review of David Bentley Hart's New Testament. And then David Bentley Hart wrote a review of N.T. Wright's review. <laughs> and my favorite line is when DBH, as I like to call him, said, this is where N.T. Wright is wrong and I am right. You know, I just loved the, he was just so confident about, about it. And they were arguing about Greek. So the subject isn't as amusing as the actual writing. So they get mad at each other. They fight each other. And even in history, the Bible fights have gotten so big, they've started punching each other and killing each other. This is literally true, right? It's really, it's really a big deal. It's terrible. People die over this. Um, so that's, I think Bible nerds cause that. And I've been accused, this is, this is the interesting thing, I'm, I'm professing my love of the Bible to you, and people have told me you're not biblical enough, or you're not very scriptural. I like, I like those, uh, 
those uh, comments that I, I, I somehow have collected these over the years. So yeah, and, and that's the kind of nerd fight that I'm talking about, right? And, and the nerd fight can sting. I've been hurt by it personally. No one's ever punched me or hurt or physically hurt me so far. Actually, it, in youth group, somehow <laughs> violence was a part of boys relating. <laughs> I have a lot of, I, that's another sermon. Um, and we have to raise our boys better, that's what I think, so that we don't find comic relief in violence, for example. So nerds can have fights that sting about all sorts of subjects, you know. And if you don't believe me, you know, play Pokemon Go with my friends and I, and you'll see how competitive it can get. But the nerds, like me, often forget that people don't love the Bible the same way that we do. And they don't want to sort through it in the same way, and it can be tiresome. Why should I hate a book? Like, why am I reading a book that I hate, that's frustrating me, that I don't understand? I don't think that gives anyone a blank check to do whatever they want with the Bible, but I think sometimes Bible nerds lose sight of the fact that not everyone is as into as the Bible, uh, of, as into the Bible as we are. You know, when I'm in that Greek class and I'm just going through it, I'm not even asking those questions that this person was asking me. I'm just going through it. It all makes sense. I have a well-formulated idea about how to use the Bible. Now I'm learning Greek, and it makes sense in my mind. You know, I'm I'm already like ten steps ahead, and we sometimes forget how do we. People aren't even at the first step yet. And I don't expect everyone to have the same relationship with the Bible that I do, and I don't think you need to be an expert in the Bible, and I certainly am not to use it. I don't think you need to read about it all the time or obsess over it, as if the key to your faith in Jesus is becoming a Bible scholar. But that stuff too often goes without saying, doesn't it? So I, today I want to start, I want to I I say the things that go without saying. This whole season, we're trying to answer frequently asked questions. And we have the season planned out, the questions that I'm going to try to answer over the next few weeks. But should you have a question that you think is pressing, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine changing the plan. Um, so that's, that's okay. So, uh, so this, we're trying to answer questions that people ask to engender dialogue. And that's what we'll do at the end of this. I'll try to wrap this up soon so that we can all talk back and forth more than we usually do. So tonight's about how, how do we read the Bible, and I want to offer a brief answer to that question, and then we'll hopefully have more questions and comments after. You can ask me anything or relate to the content as you want. My, my, my answer is just this one word, how together. That's, a, that's an important part of me, of, 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 of for me, of reading the Bible. I got to do it in the context of a community, and that's going to be the long and the short of my answer. But I want to acknowledge that the subject warrants a lot of dialogue and thoughts. And volumes and volumes have been written about the Bible. More than any other book have things been written down than on the Bible. Imagine that. It's like the most read book ever. And, in my opinion, the most influential book ever, too. The Library of Congress made a list of the most influential books in the United States. In the United States, the first one's the Bible. Uh, the second one's an Ayn Rand book. So uh, make what you will. Of, that's very interesting. That's too specific, I know. But if you don't, just look up A-Y-N, Rand. Okay, you know Rand Paul? Named after Ayn Rand. 
because of his dad, Ron Paul. It's a very interesting family, <laughs> if you follow them. So it's the most influential book ever. It's the most read book ever. They've written more things about it than anything else. And amazingly, we're still asking this question, how do we read the Bible? And you might ask the same question of Emily Dickinson or Shakespeare or Homer. But I think people talk. And, but, you know, even though we ask the same question, how do I read Emily Dickinson? And you kind of need to. That's a good question for Emily Dickinson with all of her dashes and her poems. No one can quite decipher. Anyone read Emily Dickinson? Okay, they're the nerds. Good. <laughs> now you're all ashamed to say it. I know. But we don't ask the same kind of question. Um, and in my opinion, those authors' works don't hold the same existential weight as the Bible. Um, and that's largely because of the people who read the Bible's doing. Emily Dickinson isn't particularly claiming to speak for God. And even in other sacred texts, let's say the Hebrew Bible, which is like the Old Testament, the first part of our Bible, or the Quran, the sacred text of Islam, we don't have the same problems as we do with the Bible, right? There's, there's some reasons for that. Let me just briefly touch this for a moment. Jewish people have generally had no problem with dialogue and debate around their book, right? You know, the old joke says, two rabbis, three opinions, right? Like, th th there's no problem with a, with a dialogue there. And even most of the Orthodox Jews who trace the authors of their books to figures in them, like Moses wrote the Torah, the, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, the Pentateuch, many different names for it. Even they, who think Moses wrote it, think that the debate is okay, that the Midrash is okay, right? That's the discussion of the text, which is actually held in high regard, too. So they have texts and commentaries that they hold regarding the discussion of the Bible. You know, um, I kind of like that tradition. And in broad strokes, again, these are very broad. You know, some Muslims think that the Quran was explicitly dictated by God. So even though there's commentary and discussion beyond God's word, many w Muslims think it was explicitly written down by God. And so the, it, it, with those two ideas, those two Abrahamic religions and how they approach the text, Christianity is somehow different than that, at least from my understanding. We generally combine both of those ideas. And that's, that makes for, a, that makes for a, like a cocktail that curdles, if you will. It doesn't always work. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Bible is clearly written by people. No one asks this question. The writers, they, they say, this, I wrote this. And we sometimes debate over whether it was written by the people the text says it was written by or by other people. But we think that it was written by human beings. Or really, we know it. And we sometimes debate how involved God was in that. Some people think that God did give the words explicitly to the writers. Like from, from God's lips to their ears. Some say that the Bible is perfectly without error on all matters, and others say it's, it's very, it doesn't lead us astray on spiritual matters, but it doesn't have a lot to say about like cosmology, for example. And others use, you've heard language like this, right? Even, even, even the writer of Timothy says God breathed, right? The Bible is God breathed. Uh, the Bible is the inspired word of God. Have you heard this before? Those words are even up for some debate. We can talk about what those words mean. What does it mean for a book to be inspired by God? 
So Christians have generally given the Bible authority, said it was written by people, and then disagreed about how to apply that authority. And that is the same largely of the two other religions that I listed. But I think that our insistence that it was written by um, humans and that it was inspired by God complicates it. So it seems like there's a way to read the Bible, but I don't think we've been exceedingly clear on the matter. And plus, the Bible is full of passages and ideas that are complicated in a 21st century urban environment, right? In Philadelphia in 2018, the Bible says things that are hard to apply, literally. Circle of Hope has a proverb that says, we must be doers of the word. We're very interested in doing theology and doing the Bible. So when we read the Bible, we're interested in applying it, right? For us, that's the ground that we stand on. If we're not applying and doing the Bible, studying it is much less useful. Teaching and learning from it are also less useful. We're trying to get to some action. Enacted faith, enacted belief is what matters. And it really is what matters. The Bible should be enacted if it's a primary, if it's to have any primary use for the Christian. So doing the Bible as a group project and studying it should take like a lifetime. It's okay that you'll study it for the rest of your life and by the end of it you won't have all the answers that you want. We're working on something together and we're working on it for the sake of the time and the place that we live. The Bible is an inspired and an authoritative text in a piece of revelation that God gives us. But I want you to think about that inspiration like it might be a song. So if I wrote a song for my wife or my child, I might say this song was inspired by them. That's a nice idea. And I think that's how the Bible is inspired by God. Passionate people in love with God wrote words about God and those words have a rich tradition of helping people follow God and Jesus throughout history. And they've time and again been affirmed by those people as a primary source of revelation. We have this tradition, we have this history in Christianity. And there's not much you can do about that, right? It's hard to be a Christian if you don't take the Bible seriously. Like many powerful books, though, it's been used for evil. But followers of Jesus and in history have such an admiration for the book. In the Christian tradition, we admire it, that we should give the Bible a fair shake, right? That's, that for me, that's the, the longevity and the consistent influence of the text. Over 2,000 years warrants it to be really taken seriously, right? I think that you can avoid it for a season if you want, but your plan probably can't be, I'm following Jesus and I'm ignoring this primary piece of revelation. That has, that has been affirmed for millennia. But, because I'm saying the Bible is the inspired word of God in the same way that a song is inspired about my wife might be, we might be asking the wrong questions about the Bible. So if I wrote a song about my child or my wife, you wouldn't say, is that true about her? Is this song true about Kristen? And I'd look at you like, what are you talking, it's a song. What do you mean, is it true about her? I wrote it <laughs> about her. You know, it's not really meant for what you're trying to use it for, you know. It's like asking what the color green smells like or what wine sounds like. Some of you had enough wine that you think it starts to sound like something. That's not where I'm going. Or like, what does Beethoven's fifth taste like? Wrong question. 
doesn't work. You know, it's the wrong tool for that uh, kind of epistemology. So I want to use it for the for the uh, for for the uh, right purpose. Asking asking that question: Is the Bible true? Has some problems because of the form of the text. But what we have is a rich series of texts written by dozens of people over hundreds of years. These, this is largely an expression of passion for God. And I think we should work out our entire faith in the context of community. And reading the Bible is part of that. The Bible itself is a communal text. <laughs> Sometimes books of the Bible were written by many different people. Or put together by others too. People have been influencing the Bible for a long time. Inspired people, mind you. It's written over time by dozens of people. It's communal. And so it was instrumental in the formation of the early church. I mean, you know, before scriptures were called scriptures, they were used by the early community as scriptures. Right? Before the Bible was bound together as one book, letters were circulated, um, maybe even the gospels were out there, and they were used largely for uh, worship worshipful reasons. You know, for something to be included in the canon of the New Testament, it needed to have a tradition of being used in that way beforehand. It's not like they collected random books and then took a vote. Right? These are books that were used commonly among us. You know? And there are other processes. Uh, the, the Presbyterian Church of the United States, for example, has um, a confessional, a book of a series of confessions that they make. It's not the Bible, but they uh, wanted to add the letter from Birmingham jail to it. Right to their confessional, and they have a whole procedure for how they do this. But it's the same kind of thing. If something is used consistently in liturgy, it was considered for the canon. We generally think the canon, uh, which is what we call the New Testament, is closed. Although some people say it's open if you could ever get the ecumenical councils together to agree on something. Fat chance. So, you know, for all, even if you're an, even if you're open to it, it's not likely, right? Do the nerds agree? Because I'm still holding out for some. I got some. I got, I, I, have an, I have a few additions I'd like to <laughs> propose if if in, if the time comes. You know, it's been about a thousand years since the last. Well, I guess I just ignore the Reformation in that. You know, I just go right to the East-West schism. It's been a while. Anyway, we have a rich test written in a communal way by a lot of different people. Is instrumentation in the formation of the early church, and so these letters and and, and books had respect before. They were collected and called the New Testament. They had authority before they were given authority. And early in the church, so close to its formation, the early church needed to differentiate from competing philosophies and form itself as a unique thing. And so they made distinct guidelines for, how to, for reading the Bible, for theology. They came to agreements. The early church fathers and mothers were given a kind of authority, largely due to what they were doing, not who they were, to hold the church together. And they helped keep the church united while also being inclusive. In my study, every early church council, Jerusalem, you can look these up later, Jerusalem, Nicaea, Chalcedon, were all about keeping people together and including others. You usually had two or three different philosophies, and they tried to come up with a decision that held them all together, right? And they used terms um, about God that um, we use in common today, like they basically invented the idea of the Trinity in order to keep people together in this peculiar 
monotheistic faith with like three persons and one deity, right? It's complicated. They had to come up with a whole new idea. And to this day, there's no better explanation for the Trinity than what they wrote down. Anyway, that's a little side point. They tried to come up with ways to include people because the biggest threat to the church was the danger of division. We've got to keep this got to keep this thing together because we're too small to, to break up. And eventually the church, in order to stay united, to stay, uh, to, to maintain the, I won't use that word, to be united together, it collected a lot of authority, the church did, in order not to be divided. And at some point before Gutenberg, the, the Bibles were so rare, and some, some, some guy had to copy them, they really protected the Bible. They even like chained it in the cathedral, right? So you couldn't run away with it. That came to symbolize too much power. They were held in a lot of security because they were, it was valuable. But it created too much power in a central location regarding the Bible. And if you read the Bible, you'll know that there's a very robust discussion in the Old Testament, a series of comments and debates about the dangers of centralized centralization, right? In the Old Testament, you have two different schools of thought that think, no, we should have a centralized kind of headquarters as Jewish people, and others to say you shouldn't. You know, should we have a temple? Should we not have a temple? There are still some Jewish people that think they should, there should be a, another temple, like a third temple. The second one was destroyed. First one was destroyed, then the second one was, and so far there haven't been more main central ones. So maybe there will be one. That'd be interesting. But by the time of the Reformation, Set during a time of increased education and individualism in Europe, many Christians had enough with the Pope's power and rebelled against it. And I, I respect the reformers, guys like uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, because they said that the interpretation of the Bible and the authority of the church wasn't rooted in centralized power but in all believers. You know, what followed was more schisms and more Protestant denominations. The Bible went from being centrally interpreted, interpreted to individually interpreted. This is an important and elemental shift that spoke to the needs of the time and place. You see how the early church needed to keep it together with some sense of authority so that it wouldn't divide up into a million pieces? And at some point it got too centralized, so you had to reform and get some individual liberty back into it. And then what they predicted happened, happened, and we all broke up into a million pieces, but we're generally still like down with each other, you know? Like, the Baptists still have their potluck together, even though they disagree about a lot of things, and their Congregationalist-style thing, you know, where every, every congregation has their own little unique theology, and it all counts, but they can still get together over casseroles, right? They, there's still some sense of unity there. That's good. Um, and acknowledging that the, the time and place mattered remains useful today, but it kind of undid the, the need for communal reading. You know, I think we should read the Bible as a decentralized, in a decentralized way, but in a communal way. I want to read it together without all the power that's typically been required for keeping people together. Um, I want us to hold it together and read it together and be united, not because we're afraid of being excommunicated, you know, but because we've agreed that we're going to move together. I love that kind of idea, low power, high, high unity. Low power and individuality isn't such a great um, combination, in my opinion. But I want you to see that the Bible has always been interpreted with the needs of the present people in mind and written in a way with the needs of the present people in mind. That's why doing the Bible as a group project that begins 
thinking about the group, who wrote it, and to the groups that it was written to, but then moves through how it was interpreted throughout history and finally ends where we are now. We read the Bible contextually. You might even hear that. What's the context of this passage? But that context doesn't end today. We read it in this context. And I think that the New Testament in particular gives us the liberty to do that. The Bible is an expression of love and passion for God, and it remains useful today, and sometimes not even for the same reasons it was then. My favorite Bible scholars are the Old Testament ones. Some of you are afraid of the Old Testament because God sometimes acts genocidal in the Old Testament, does things that you're like, well, why would God do that? And the reason I love these Old Testament scholars is because, the, like I said, the Old Testament's weird. And it has a lot of weird things in it. Not just like crazy violent things, just strange things. Weird things happen in the Old Testament. You're like, wait, why? Why do you do that? And, and uh, things that conflict with our worldview so readily that we don't even think about applying it literally. Like it doesn't even make sense. Like you see a different cosmology in the Old Testament, a different economy, different rituals, traditions. Everything is way different, right? You know, Galileo got in some trouble when he said that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the earth revolved around the sun and not the sun around the earth because it seemed to co contradict the Bible. It was a big thing and the Spanish Inquisition and the whole thing. A lot of bad things happened. They were real intense and threatened by science. These days, we're, we don't have that kind of, in my opinion, uh, aggressive relationship, or we don't need to as much, right? It could still be there a little bit. But in general, there aren't a lot of people that think that the earth, sun rotates around the earth um, or that it's flat, for example, right? There is a somehow... You know, the internet's made me aware of groups of people that still think this. Or like Shaq is a flat earther, which is surprising to me. I closely follow the uh, philosophy of Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> yeah, Shaq's a flat earther. I don't, I don't get it. I don't want to talk about that. It's very entertaining, though. <laughs> the Old Testament law comes from somewhere clearly a different place. That even the most conservative ri uh, readers of the Bible understand that it shouldn't be applied literally. It's not even a practical matter. It's not even like a should. It's like can. Can you even do this? Like there's laws about like what fabric you should, uh, f two different fabrics that shouldn't be woven together or fields that shouldn't have the same crop on them, right? Y'all don't make your own clothes or grow your own food, you know? Now there are some people that strictly follow the old kosher laws. That's true. But for many of us, it's largely impractical um, to the point where we realize, no, we, there is something else that needs to happen here. This gets more complicated in the New Testament because even though it was written thousands of years ago, the culture today, especially in the West, has been so influenced by Greece and Rome that it's not a huge stretch to try to apply it literally. The New Testament feels more like home to us. So we'll fail at applying it literally, but not as much. But we'll learn that maybe we shouldn't be doing this to the Bible. So I want to do this with the Bible in mind, with the idea that it's always been a relational and communal text, that we've always used it for relating. That means you don't have to be an expert because we, we have some people that are really knowledgeable about the Bible, even in this room. Um, the experts would do well to listen to others and stop living in a world of scholarship, which is very limiting and hardly the context of our time and place. Too many academics think that uh, the ivory tower is like humanity. You know, Most people don't know what you're talking about, and they might never know. You know, Especially with, sorry, with the biblical scholars like, 
keep writing your PhDs. I hope people read them. But it's just super esoteric. And I, I, I mean, I'll read them. You know, and I have my whole justification for it, but part of me is just like, wow, this is real detail. Sorry, Josh, I'm not trying to bust your chops back there. There's a Bible extra back there. This might be presumptuous, but I think that scholarship also moves us a little bit far from the Bible, protects the reader from the way the Bible might challenge them. And a lot of times our scholar, scholar, uh, the, the scholarship about the Bible is largely speculative. And it removes us from the uh, possibility of an ex existential encounter with the Bible, which I like. I also want to have an existential encounter with Emily Dickinson. You know? So I like reading that way in general. So I, I, I think that the text can move us, if, it, if, if not for no, any other reason than it was written by people who loved God and who God inspired. And I think that we can have a radical encounter with the text without deconstructing it too much. So you might want to use some scholarship to firm up your foundation, but I think that we need to move beyond those questions and try to see what happens when you read it communally and in some intimacy and have an encounter with it, one in community like has happened throughout history. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.